0: We almost got through with chapter 8 last week. We just have the tiniest, tiniest bit. So you need your your grid that you had from last week on Antichus Epiphanies. And that's pretty much all you need. That in your Bible. Open to Daniel chapter 8. We found out a lot of interesting stuff last week. Um, and we have been taking chapter 8 and kind of parsing it up into pieces. And just reading the pieces in the vision kind of chronologically and then going and picking up the interpretation that associated with those. So we're now down to verse 11 of the vision. Uh, We had just finished reading verse 12. We're going to go back up and and read the last half of verse 11. So in in verse 11 it says, the very end of it, that during the time of this evil king, The place of his sanctuary was thrown down. That's God's sanctuary was thrown down. According to Daniel's vision, he also, this evil king, stops the regular sacrifice to God. That's what it says in verse 12. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And where we left off last week was looking at what that word transgression meant. And we found out that this particular one means revolt or rebellion. Apostasy means apostasy. If we go back to our grid, we're now on the top of the second page of the of the grid of Antiochus Epiphanes. We finished the first page. We just got a couple of little pieces to go. So, row 10 says, in the vision it says, he throws down the sanctuary of God. That actually fits both Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. Because Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the things he's most famous for is the fact that he defiled the temple by building an altar to, essentially, Zeus over the top of it and slaughtering a pig. And um, that would... I think, qualify as throwing down the sanctuary of God from a prophetic point of view. The Antichrist, when we read, we'll get to chapter 9, like imminently, but in verse 26 of chapter 9, it says that his people will destroy both Jerusalem and the sanctuary. So it definitely fits the Antichrist as well. If we go on uh, to to verse 25, which we've been picking up in little pieces, in verse 25, which is part of the interpretation, the interpretation says that this evil king will be broken without human agency. Which implies that he, his end will come not by the operation of men, but by the operation of God. And for Antiochus, in, on row 11 of your grid, for Antiochus Epiphanes, you could say that fits because he was not killed in battle. He died of an illness. Okay. Um, A very sudden illness in the Antichrist, we know, is destroyed by God's hand because we read the prophecy in Daniel chapter two about the stone that's going to crush, you know, the feet of the idol. and, And he's the last king of that idol. He is the last of those kings. So we know that that the Antichrist is going to be destroyed by Jesus. We know exactly who's going to do it. And then we get to the very last couple of verses which are you know kind of interesting because in verse 13, Daniel's standing around. He's very present in his visions. He doesn't usually see visions of other people. He's, he's always standing in the visions. He's always a participant, very similar to John in Revelation. Um, he's a participant, and he, and he overhears stuff, and he writes it down, and he overhears one holy guy talking to another holy guy, and they say, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. There's a there's a lot of information packed in there. For one thing, they're talking about the time during which the sacrifice has been stopped. Okay, that's already been prophesied. They're talking about the time during which the transgression or the rebellion is causing horror. Okay. And during that, and it frames that time frame. Those are your parentheses. That frames the time frame during which the holy place and the host will be trampled. If you remember our talk about the host last week, some, this evil king rises, you know, his power rises to heaven to the extent that he influences some of the host of heaven to come with him and they fall to earth and end up being trampled. The answer was this occurs for 2300 evenings and mornings. Now this is part of the vision. Now let's look at the interpretation. The interpretation is in verse 26. The interpretation says the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Well, what that serves to do is tell us we should take the 2300 mornings and evenings literally, that it's not symbolic. That's part of the interpretation. It says, that's it. Okay. Scholars started looking back to try to understand, was there a 2300 morning and evening period during Antiochus Epiphanes reign that would fit this? Well, one of the things that they noticed was that the Isra- the sacrifices that were supposed to be given to the Lord were to be given in the morning and in the evening. So there is considerable debate as to whether this 2,300 mornings and evenings means 2,300 of each or 2,300, you know, pairs, pairs okay? So, so it either is 2,300 days or it's 1,150 days? See the point? Okay. Well, the, the, fo- the very last row on your grid is row 14. Antiochus Epiphanes, there just isn't a 2,300-day period that makes any sense. For one thing, Maccabees is very clear that the desecration of the temple only lasted three years. And it lasted three years to the day. They named the exact day. On both ends that it happened. So if you do the math, you know, 365 times 3 is 1,080 days. That equals neither 2,300 nor 1,150. You just can't get there from here. If you read in the footnotes of the NIV study Bible and, and in other places, many other scholars say, well, apparently the temple was desecrated sometime before that date and that makes up the difference. I have a hard time reading scripture like that. (laughs) So so I put an X on here. (laughs) And and on the Antichrist column, we don't know this. This could certainly be a prophecy that gives us some information we need to keep in mind when the Antichrist comes. That there will be a 2300 day period. That ends the chapter 8. Poor Daniel, he was exhausted. His 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 comment about the whole, whole ordeal was, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. He didn't have the benefit of hindsight. He just could not fathom what God was trying to tell him. Just like us nowadays. <laughs> we can't imagine but you know with his help with Daniel's help and the help of the Holy Spirit we sure can get a pretty good idea of a shadow of what to expect so if you look back in summary over this handout the grid of Antiochus Epiphanes or the Antichrist the way I see it Antiochus Epiphanes fits maybe 60 60 50-60% of the time just really not a good fit, in my opinion. The Antichrist, on the other hand, I believe is a perfect fit to this prophecy. That's that's the way I read it. Um, the, the key points that people hang their hats on for the Antiochus Epiphanes interpretation are the stretching of the 1150 days. Okay. The fact that he was unusually cruel and did defile the sanctuary. Well, he wasn't the only one in history to do that, but he did do that. And, um, and the host of heaven, that's the other one. The host, in order to make it fit Antichus Epiphanies, you have to interpret the host as being the saints, the pe- physical people, the Jews, the people here on earth. And, and my, And that's why I went through with you last week all the scripture about the host of heaven, because I don't think that's a scriptural interpretation of that. I think if you look at the scripture, you don't get saints out of that. (laughs) Okay. All right. So now we get a chance to go to Daniel chapter 9. And one of the just really neat things about the book of Daniel is its rhythm. It has these interludes of story. In between hardcore prophecy. And, and so it gives us, it's a great book to start with because we don't have to just really do a lot of mind work every single time. You know, it's kind of like every other story we get, either the story about Daniel and his friends not eating meat and, and what that it means to be faithful. You get these kind of lessons and basic christianity you know in basic basic worship and then you get the you get the the story about shadrach meshach and abednego and then you get the story about belshazzar's feast and and you get these pieces that give you a sense for what the well-rounded christian in our case should be and we're coming to one of those in chapter nine now the end of chapter nine we get to some hardcore prophecy but the first part of chapter nine is another story in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, Ascent, this is that very first, the Darius the first king, the one that might be Cyrus, might not, you know, the, the one that, that conquered Belshazzar. So This is the king we're talking about. Who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, For the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. Namely, 70 years. Now this was phenomenal. For one thing, Daniel was obviously a contemporary of Jeremiah's. We've talked about that before. And there's a terrific timeline on page 19 of your little study guide. If if you're going along in the study guide. And I refer to that all the time. And it shows the relative lifespans of or spans of Jeremiah's ministry versus Daniel's ministry. If I'll, I'll just hold it up for you, and you can see that Daniel is this big block here through, throughout the, the Babylonian dynasty and the first part of the Persian one, and Jeremiah is this one here, this little block here. Okay, so you can see that Jeremiah was a generation older than Daniel. Now Daniel, we know from scripture, was a prince of Judah. He was of royal blood. That's why he got taken in the first deportation. That's who they took. And, and Jeremiah's ministry was to the king, to the kings of Judah, to a series of kings of Judah. And, and Jeremiah's ministry was what I would call God's object lessons. God, what is, what is interesting about Jeremiah is is not his message. His message was very consistent. It was repent, turn back to God, and you m- might be saved. <laughs> okay, and it was like getting to the end. And and he said that over and over and over. He said that to the people. He said that to the enemies. He said that to the nations around him. He said that to the king to his, the now, kings of his own nation. Nebuchadnezzar this is, is who he ministered to. no. To Jeremiah ministered to the kings of Judah. Of Judah, yes. Well, he left over into Nebuchadnezzar's. Yes, but Jeremiah was one of the ones left behind. Okay. okay? So you have to think that there still is a Jerusalem for many years or several years after Daniel was deported. There were like three or four separate deportations. that Nebuchadnezzar's army would keep coming back, okay, for various reasons. And uh, Daniel was taken in the first wave. Jeremiah was left to the bitter end. In fact, Jeremiah actually never was taken in captivity to Babylon. He accompanied the what is like the remnant of the remnant of, of of Jews from Jerusalem who fled to Egypt, and there he continued to minister to them. He he warned them not to go to Egypt. He said the Lord doesn't want you to go to Egypt. If you'll just, you know stay here and deal with the King of Babylon, things will be fine and and they wouldn't do it. They told him they would. They said, Jeremiah, go to the Lord. Ask him what you know, what we should do. And Jeremiah came back and told them and they said, Well we don't care. We don't believe you were gonna e- go to Egypt anyway. You know, I, really? That's what they did. And, and, you know, someday maybe we can study Jeremiah. It would be a, a quick study, probably four lessons, because you don't get into the message as much as how God talked to Jeremiah because he spoke to him very tangibly. Jeremiah is the one that we have the, the, you know, he went to the potter and he sees the potter molding the clay. God tells him to do a lot of, God tells him to do stuff with his underwear for gosh sakes. It's really an amazing book. And, um, uh, and so doubtless Daniel remembers Jeremiah from his Teenage years, you know, because Daniel would have been present in court from time to time. And Jeremiah for sure was present and for sure was noticed and talked about. So Jeremiah, even though he ended up being, being uh, he actually ended up dying in Egypt, he is known to the exiles in Babylon. Not only, he's known to them because they knew him in Jerusalem, but also he wrote long letters to the exiles in Babylon. He, he not only spoke his prophecy, he wrote it down and sent it off to them, the ones that had already been deported. And it's some of these prophecies that Daniel finds. They are just kind of out there floating around. And, and the, the way that um, the whole thing happened was kind of interesting. Let me see if I can catch up to myself here. The prophecy that Daniel found... Was original, It's in it's in the book of Jeremiah in two places. And if you look on your uh, scripture references for chapter 9 uh, from last week, it should have two big blocks on it. We're going to start with Jeremiah 25, verse 3. And I'm going to skip through this. You can, you know, kind of, I'm going to start at the top, it, but just kind of skim down it. Because the message says, this is the prophecy, the word of the Lord came to me. And I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened. Saying, turn now everyone from his evil way. Do not go. I'm skipping down to verse 6. Do not go after other gods. Do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, meaning building idols. If you skip down to verse 8. Therefore, the Lord says, because you have not obeyed my words, I will send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and will bring him against this land and its inhabitants and all the nations around it. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and hissing. Meaning that the meaning of the hissing is like you go by and you whistle like, whew, man, I can't believe that's what God did. That kind of a, you know, just object of disbelief it was so thorough is the punishment I'm going to bring the Lord said and this was Jeremiah's prophecy to these kings of Judah and to the nation of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar came okay he's trying to tell them the Lord's saying I'm going to wipe you out if you don't repent and then look at the very last verse of that one verse 11 and 12 this whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years Then it will be, when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it in an everlasting desolation. So that's the original prophecy where Jeremiah prophesied that this captivity by the Babylonians would last 70 years or the desolate, it says the desolation will last 70 years so daniel knew this well he didn't oh he didn't he know this. he didn't know this he found this that's Later. what verse not that's what we're reading is daniel found jeremiah's prophecy saying this bit about the 70 years and he's just like totally blown away by this this is important information <laughs> to him So there's a, there is a transcript of a letter that Jeremiah sent to the Babylon, to the exiles in Babylon, recorded in Jeremiah 29, verse 1 through 14, where he recorded this prophecy and sent it in letter form to Babylon. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Nebuchadnezzar to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, and he names all the people that, that got exiled. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Take wives. Multiply. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. Down in verse 8. Do not let your prophets deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely. I have not sent them. And that did happen. They did have prophets arise in Babylon. Prophesying to the people that, you know, all is well. And he said, don't listen to these guys. And, you know, the, they would prophesy the captivity's getting ready to end. God said, don't listen to them. This is the truth. And And Jeremiah wrote this down in a letter, sent it to the ones that had already been deported, and said in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place for I know the plans that I have for you plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Now dissect this just a little bit because the timing is important. Verse 11, he says, I have plans that are good, not bad. I'm going to give you a future and a hope and he says then you will call upon me come and pray to me and listen to me so the lord actually says here in this prophecy that first he's going to bless them then they will turn to him that's pretty amazing stuff considering what the lord went through with them and you know you would kind of expect them to make them repent first and then bless them but that's not exactly what this says that's right. Now, Daniel picks this up, and he realizes the 70 years is almost complete. He can count it a couple of different ways, but he knows that Jerus- it relates it talks about the desolation, right, of, of Jerusalem it being destroyed. Well, he knows, because it's already happened, that Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. And that's actually on your ti- ti- little short timeline that I gave you last week called the Jeremiah Timeline. We're going to look at that next. It's the one that's in color. So if you look, what I, this is the same timeline we've been looking at. I just chopped off the, the Roman Empire. And what we're really wanting to look at are these three bold arrows. The middle arrow is when Jerusalem was destroyed. So you can see that in relation to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, you can see that it happened... Um, not all that long before the the rise of the Persian Empire but some years before. In chapter 9, Daniel is in the very beginning of the Persian Empire, like year 1, okay? He's the Persian Empire began in 539 BC. That was when Belshazzar's feast was and the first full year of the reign of the Persians would have been counted from the next year, you know, the beginning of the next year, which would have been 538 B.C. So Daniel is in 538 B.C. All right. So he knows that it's been 50 years already since Jerusalem was destroyed. He's been living, poor guy, in Babylon for more than 50 years. Okay. Okay. And he knows that Jeremiah has prophesied 70 years. And I want to just take a quick detour to talk about time counting again. Okay, a real quick little time counting. No handouts, just a little quick telling you about it. And that is that, that in ancient times, they used generally a lunar calendar. The Jews certainly used a lunar calendar that had 30 days. It was a 30-day cycle. So and they had twelve months in their year. So that would be a 360-day year, kind of like some of the banks use around here. Okay. <laughs> and that is used throughout ancient history. The problem is there isn't a calendar in ancient history. Every single civilization had their own calendar. They had their own number of months, their own ways of starting, their own times of starting the year. Some some started it in the fall, some started it in the spring. The Jews You know, flip-flopped all over the place because they lived in all of these other nations from time to time. So you can't ever really get a good handle on their time frames. But one of the supports for a biblical 360-day year is in Genesis chapter 7, verse 10. I think I put that in your handout on the scripture references. Uh, 7, verse 10. Okay. This is in Noah. And this... Talks about the fact that when Noah was 600 years old, the flood started on the, in the second month on the 17th day of the month. Okay. Chapter eight, verse three says the ark came to rest in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month. Okay. So the flood lasted from the second the 17th of the second month to the 17th. Of the seventh month, five exact months to the day. Okay, back up to Genesis eight, verse one. At the or verse three, at the very end of that little phrase, one sentence covers you know several verses. It says the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of one hundred and fifty days, the water decreased. How much is five months times thirty days? 150 days. Okay? So there, right in Genesis, we have a biblical source saying we're using 30 day months here. Okay? Now, the problem is that works for short, relatively short periods of time, but if you use a 360 day year, pretty much even we would notice we were off (laughs) a little. Okay? And so what would happen in ancient times, they didn't do, since they used 360-day years, they couldn't just do a leap year and add a day. They would do a leap month. They would just throw an extra month in there every once in a while. And and it would be a repeat month. So they'd have two of the same month over again. Okay. So when you're looking at short periods of time, you should count 30-day months. When you're looking at long periods of time, it's relatively safe to count a 365 day year because somewhere in there they probably adjusted. Okay, Your problem is you can't be precise because you don't know when they adjusted. Did they just adjust? You know, did they adjust a long time ago? You don't know when exactly they did. Were they off when this particular prophecy was written? So when I give you dates, I'm going to give you kind of ranges. Okay, because there is no way to tell exactly how it did count that particular time of history. I thought it would be really interesting to take advantage of the fact that we have hindsight that Daniel doesn't. All right. We happen to know that the, the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem in 516 BC. That's the third heavy arrow on your timeline. We know that that was 70 years from the destruction of Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? The Bible records both those dates for us. We know exactly when they were. We know they were 70 years apart. It is amazing. Isn't that amazing? Now, Daniel didn't know that. Okay, Daniel's stuck back here. <laughs> okay, but what he does know is that Cyrus, or Darius, or whoever it is, the Cyrus has allowed, that very year, allowed a remnant of Jews to return to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the temple. So he sees the signs that the end is coming. Now, another thing that might have gone through Daniel's mind is, well, maybe, you know, Jerusalem had been under siege. Jerusalem was, you know, not a happy city for a very long time before it got sacked and destroyed. So Daniel might be thinking, well, maybe it wasn't like counting from the final, final destruction. Maybe it's from the beginning, okay, of the desolation of Jerusalem. What if it started counting from the first deportation that Daniel was in? Well, Daniel's deportation was in uh, 597 B.C. And if you count forward 70 years from there, he would have been two years from the end of captivity. And he's sitting there, he's looking at the, he's looking at the verses that talk about the fact that one of the things that will happen at the end of the 70 years is the king of Babylon will be punished in the land of the Chaldeans. He's just witnessed that very year, he's witnessed Belshazzar's fall, the fall of Babylon. He's, he's thinking, you know what? The 70 years is up! The 70 years is up! What did Daniel do? Did he jump up and down? Did he holler in the streets? Did he say, Hooray! Did he throw a party? No, he did not. Look what he did. Chapter 9, verse 3. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. You see, Daniel would have understood the significance of that 70 years. I haven't told you yet why the number was 70. But Daniel knew why the number was 70. When are you going to tell us? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to find that out. The uh, book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and it's in your scripture references. Chapter 36, verse 15, holds the key to the significance of the 70 years. The Lord God of their fathers sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Now, remember, we're reading Second Chronicles. This is a history of what happened to the Jews. OK, so it's written after the fact. We're reading somebody who wrote what happened long after it had taken place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. Scott, and I'm skipping through here, scoffed at his prophets Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men, had no compassion on them. He gave them all into his hand, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its sabbaths all the days of its desolation it kept sabbath until 70 years were completed now we didn't see that in jeremiah because that wasn't recorded by whoever was writing down the book of jeremiah but we do find out that jeremiah prophesied that the 70 years would last until the land had completed its sabbaths now what's that about okay so to find out what that's about, you've got to pull that thread a little further and go back into Leviticus 25, verse 1, also on your, on your handout. Now, th- now, in Leviticus, you're back at the beginning of the Lord with the Israelites while they're wandering around in the wilderness. Okay, and He's giving them the law, and this is the law. The Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, we're going to read this whole thing, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, which I shall give you, that's the promised land. When you come to the promised land, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. And then skip down to any promises in the middle there that he'll provide for you. Basically what he said was in your sixth year you'll have a bumper crop and you'll be able to live off of what you got in the sixth year as well as what's just naturally growing in the fields. You know, just he said just don't plow and prune and do anything. He said just live off of what you find. And very similar to the parable of the manna where when God sent the manna, he sent the manna for six days. On the sixth days there was double manna and that was the only day that manna wouldn't spoil overnight was on the sixth day any other day it would spoil verse 8 you are also to count off seven sabbaths of years for yourself seven times seven years so that you have the time of the seven sabbaths of years namely 49 years i'm glad he did the math (laughs) he says okay every seventh year is a sabbath year let the land rest but every 50th year after the 49th year you shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the Day of Atonement, you shall sound... in the Day of Atonement, you remember, is the day where they confess their sins. Okay, The Day of Atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year... And proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. What he's saying there, and this is discussed in great and gory detail elsewhere in, in the law, but, but they set their slaves free, all mortgages were res- forgiven, all debt was forgiven, anybody who had sold his family property. To someone else got it back for free it completely redistributed the wealth of the kingdom every 50 years and it was a 50 year sabbath that whole year was a a sabbath year you shall have and the last verse is what's important last two verses you shall have a the 50th year as a jubilee You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall just eat the crops out of the field. Okay. Now, you look back and you want to see, well, when did the Israel, obviously they stopped doing that. You know, because during the reign of King Josiah, who was the last good king of Jerusalem and who was the king during which Jeremiah started his ministry, During the, the, when King Josiah came to reign, he was eight years old. When he was 16 years old, he found the Lord. And he started cleansing the the, uh, Judah of all its idols and everything. Well, it was so bad. The temple had not been used in 75 years. It was being used as a, a barn, a storeroom. He sent some guys in to, you know, clean it up. And while they were cleaning it up, when it, one of the high priests, and remember high priests are hereditary. Okay, it's a hereditary line. He wasn't doing anything. He was just a high priest because he was born that way. Okay, he, one of the high priests named Hilkiah went in and ran across a scroll of, or a clay tablet or whatever they wrote on of the law. He dusted it off. He brought it out. He said, hey, King Josiah, you might be interested in this. They sat down and they read it together. King Josiah was appalled. He had no idea that what the commandments were. He was operating from the spirit. Okay? He knew God in a personal way. And that's why he knew to get rid of the idols. But he did not have the education in the commandments and the laws. And when he saw that, it's the most visible picture we have in scripture of being convicted of the law, convicting of sin. Where there is no law, there is no sin. And he now knew the law and he knew his nation was in mortal danger. And so he made them start using the temple, making sacrifices, doing all the things that they should do. It only lasted till he died and then they all just blew it off. Okay, it never went further than skin deep. So we know that at least during that period, they were certainly not obeying this commandment. It's interesting to to look to see if Jeremiah says, if the Lord says the the land missed 70 Sabbath rests, how many years would that be to count back? There's two ways to count (laughs) as usual. You can either count it. Where it's every seventh year period, and you count the Jubilee and the, the seventh year, the 49th and the 50th year together, because it would be kind of like one period, okay? In which case, um, you come up with 490 years. You yeah. know, seven times 70 is 490, a 490 year period. I don't think you should count it that way, because I believe the Lord would see the Sabbath of the 49th year and the Sabbath of the 50th year as separate acts of obedience. I really do. So I would count it where you count that Jubilee year also every 50 years. If you count it that way, you get 442 years. Okay. So I went left and said, okay, if I count backwards from the the temple being rebuilt in jerusalem in 516 bc and i count back 442 years did anything significant happen around there well look what happened in nine that gets you to 443 years gets you to the dedication of the temple of solomon whether i'm counting right or wrong it doesn't really matter if it's 490 years it just means they never did it from before that okay but but i think it's interesting that, that range of years put you right at the Temple of Solomon which means that the first opportunity after the building of the Temple of Solomon first, first time that Sabbath year rolled around they blew it out, they didn't do it well is that a big surprise? how many nations do you think would like forgive all their debts, give back all their prophecy, redistribute the wealth voluntarily <laughs> not unless their hearts were pretty right with God not unless They trusted the Lord to provide for them. That's the crux of it, right? In order to let go of that wealth, you have to believe truly that the Lord is going to provide for you because of your act of obedience and faith. They didn't have it. So this explains why Daniel did not celebrate when he read Jeremiah's scroll. Because Daniel knew that even under the good kings, they had a lot of good kings during that 442 years, okay? Starting with Solomon, and then they had a number of good kings in there, ending with Josiah. He knew that even under the good kings, they didn't do this. What, you know, without a king or with a bad king, he feared that they were not going to turn back to the Lord. So as a prophet, he jumped into the gap. He tried to intercede for the people. He tried to pray and repent on behalf of the nation and hope that God would accept that. That's a pretty big undertaking. That is a big undertaking. That is a big undertaking. And um, we have a choice here. We can stop here. It's almost time to stop. Or we can go mm, another 15 minutes, which would put us a little bit over um, and finish out the prayer that's up to you guys does anyone have to be anywhere you want to keep going all right let's finish out the prayer (laughs) uh in that case i need to give you another handout it's a handout called prayers of the people and so you're going to need your bible because we're going to refer to daniel's prayer as we go i want to read through daniel's prayer together first and then we'll look at the handout We're in chapter 9 verse, we're going to start at verse 3 because that was his preparation for prayer. Thank you. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now that starts to make some sense now that you know what the deal is with the 70 years. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah... The people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses... All this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act for your sake. O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. All right. Now let's talk about what's missing that's a beautiful prayer. If we ever do a series on prayer, we will look back at the great prayers of the Bible. And that's one of them. But I'm not going to talk about the elements of how to pray. Okay? I want to talk about his prayer from the, from the perspective of the prophecy. This is a beautiful and contrite prayer. But it wasn't from whom the Lord wanted to hear it. The people are who the Lord wanted to hear this prayer from. Okay. And that prayer from the people did not occur for many, many years. Daniel's prayer was in 538 BC. The people's prayer occurred at two different times and are on your handout, Prayers of the People. The first prayer of the people was in 458 BC that's a long time different isn't it between 539 and 458 that's a long time and Nehemiah's prayer of the people with the people in 440 BC notice that these dates are well after when the temple was rebuilt God did indeed Fulfill his promise through Jeremiah that he would bless them first and then they would turn to him. And what happened was the remnant went back to Jerusalem in the same year that Daniel was praying his prayer and they began rebuilding. Well, they started with the altar so that they could begin making sacrifices again. They then followed that with a rebuilding of the temple. And it said that, that when they laid the foundation of that temple, that everybody was crying. Half the people were crying tears of joy and half the pe- people were ty- crying tears of sorrow because it was so small and pitiful compared to what they had had before. And then the last thing they did was rebuild the wall around Jerusalem that had been destroyed during the sacking and burning of Jerusalem. At each of those times, God sent godly men To them, to guide them during their construction process. They were not only foremen, but they guided them spiritually. And I want to look at the elements of the prayer that was made. In Ezra's prayer in 458 BC, when Ezra got there, Ezra was sent, both both Ezra and Nehemiah were sent from Babylon over to Jerusalem to kind of see how things are going. And they took people with them and, you know, were trying to advance the work. Well, when Ezra got there, He discovered that they were, had been intermarrying with idolaters. And he was appalled because he knew this was, they they might as well not rebuild if they're going to do that because it would just get destroyed again. God, you know, this is about God, not about the Jews having a church, you know? So, so what he did was he tore my garment and my robe, pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and sat down appalled. And later it says he had not, they went to go get him later, and it said he had not been eating bread or drinking water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. So he fasted and he mourned. This whole sackcloth and ashes thing that the Jews do, and tearing their robes and all that, that's mourning. And, And anybody who has lost a spouse or a child or, you know, we're all going through these things, know that the emotion that wells up and how natural it is to rip your clothing. And, and that was, has been from time immemorial a symbol of, fast, of, of mourning for the Jewish people. This mourning that he's exhibiting is welling up out of his soul as a mourning over their unfaithfulness. And that's the kind of mourning that, that should be exhibited when a people has sinned. And that is what makes it so just blasphemous what that high priest did to Jesus when he, when they were interviewing, grilling Jesus about Trying to find some, some way to kill him and they couldn't find two witnesses that would say the same thing and they were running out of options and finally the high priest just asked him, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, yes. <laughs> and the high priest tore his robes. Like, how hypocritical is that? Just, how hypocritical is that, you know? But Ezra is, is tearing his robes in real grief and anguish. And it goes on to a general confession. I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord, my God. O oh God, I am embar- ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you for our, our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens since the day of our fathers. To this day, we have been in great guilt. So. The next element of his prayer is just a general confession. You know, we're all bad. You know, we have, it's not just one thing. We are generally bad. And I am so ashamed. I, I'm ashamed to pray. The next element of his prayer talks about God's grace to the people despite their sin. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place. Our God has not forsaken us. Okay, this is thanking God for his graciousness to allow a remnant to ex- even exist, much less return. And then he moves to a specific confession of specific sin. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. And then he lists the commandment, and the important part is down in verse 12 do not give your daughters to their sons, meaning the people the idolaters in the land and nor your sons to the nor take their daughters to your sons which was the specific sin that he had torn his robes about and if you turn the page that segment of specific confession is followed by a call to repentance where he prays to the lord would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction if we kept on doing what we're doing until there is no remnant nor anyone who escaped? You know, he's not saying that to the Lord. He knows the Lord would be angry with them to the point of destruction. This prayer is to the people. He's saying, you know, he's praying in front of the people. And a lot of times you hear pastors do this where they're praying to God, but they're trying to get a message across at the same time. And that's what Ezra is doing here. He's saying, if we knowingly, Continue in this sin, Lord, would you not be angry with us to the point of absolute destruction until there is no remnant nor any who escape? We are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. And then what followed was a corporate repentance. Repentance of the entire body of people. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession and weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, generally women and children were not there. This was every soul gathered to him from Israel for the people wept bitterly over their sin. They wept over their sin. That's not enough. It's not enough to just repent. You have to take remedial action. That's the hard part, right? (laughs) You have to take remedial action. And it was followed by this. One of the guys spoke up. We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women. Now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children. And if you skip down, then all the assembly replied with, and they talked about this at length before they replied, but they replied with a loud voice, that's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. That's very hard for us to understand and read generally, to talk about, they married these women, they had children by these women, they're what, they're just going to like throw them out in the ditch? Well, yes, because there is something greater at stake here than the marriage. Their whole entire foundation, their relationship with God is at stake here. And these women, whether individually or collectively, but certainly collectively, were leading them into idolatry. And teaching their children to be idolaters. And it was important to God that they remain pure. So let's compare that quickly to Nehemiah's prayer, which occurred... When they had uh, rebuilt the wall. This, they had finally completed all the work. They had rebuilt the wall of J- Jerusalem. And that well actually this, when he came it was before the wall had been rebuilt. He was appalled at how broken down Jerusalem was. This look how many years have passed. And Jerusalem is still in a complete shambles. And so I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the prayer again starts with the fasting and the praying continues with a general confession which i've listed in in here nehemiah one we're in nehemiah chapter one and this is nehemiah praying by himself at this point okay and he does a general confession i and my father's house have sinned but later on this whole prayer continues with the people and and that's recorded in nehemiah chapter eight where nehemiah Stands up before the before the people and goes through all this, and all the people answered, "Amen, I, Amen," while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. He continues, Nehemiah. This is the same, you know, set of prayers with a passage about God. This being God's grace d- despite our sin. The people at this point are weeping. And it says here somewhere in this little verse. Yeah, for in verse nine at the end of it, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law, because he got up there and he read the law to him, just like the law had been read to Josiah. Um, The Nehemiah says, don't weep because the Lord has brought you to this place out of his grace. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord. Is your strength. And he said go eat. And celebrate. Give food to whoever does not have it. Because even in our sin. The Lord is here. And is blessing us. Then they gathered. After that. They had a series of feast days. They kind of compacted the whole Jewish calendar. Into just a couple of months. They had. It's the only place you see. Like the feast of atonement. Happening on the time when it shouldn't have. You know. Because they just compressed all these feast days together. And on the 24th day of the month the sons of Israel, we're in Nehemiah 9 now the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. So here they're catching up to Nehemiah. They're they're fasting and mourning. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This was their specific confession Of their sins. Then there's a call to repentance. And I didn't put it all in here. But if you read in chapter 9. It's a complete. Just little history of every good thing. The Lord has done for them. From the time they were called as a nation. All the way through their captivity. And ending with. However you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully. But we have acted wickedly. And then it goes to the people repent. And, and here I just pulled out that verse from up above where the, all the people were weeping. Okay, so this is not necessarily a chronological prayer, but the, I'm looking at the elements of the prayer where they repented. And it's not enough, right? They have to go to the remedial action, and they did. They said, now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And in in chapter 10, verse 29, it says we are taking on their, this is all, now the rest of the people, and it lists all the people, are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of the Lord our God. We will not, and it s- starts listing them, and look what one of the ones that is listed. We will not buy on the Sabbath or Holy Day. We, and we will forego the crops the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So they get it about the Sabbath and the Jubilee and all that stuff. And and this goes on to list all the key points of the law. But if you compare these prayers to the prayer of Daniel, there's some significant elements missing. One of which is the fact it's just Daniel and not the nation. Another is Daniel had a general confession, but it lacked the specific confession of the specific sins of the people. And it lacked the call to action. In case anybody hasn't heard, God is serious. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's oh, right. Gosh.